Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and the moderator for today's meeting. Today is Sunday, July 11th, 2021. The share ID numbers for Friday, July 9th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 17,318, that's 17318. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 17,319, that's 17319. This morning, A Vision for You presents Fully Conceding to Our Innermost Selves. Step one states, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Unless we humble ourselves by taking this step, we don't need the rest of the program. All of us have come to Overeaters Anonymous as a result of the frustration and despair we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. Beaten into a state of reasonableness, we come to the realization that we are doomed. This experience of powerlessness becomes the driving force of desperation to be ready and willing to do anything which will free us from the bondage of our affliction. Such is the paradox of the 12-step recovery process. Strength arising out of complete defeat and weakness. The loss of one's old life as a condition for finding a new one. Joining us today are three recovered compulsive overeaters who will share their experience with step one, powerlessness and unmanageability. Our panelists this morning include Du L. from New York, Christoph L. from Pennsylvania, and Jen A. from Colorado. And it's with great appreciation that I welcome panelist number one, Du L. to the line. Good morning, Du. Good morning. Thank you, Leah, for that lovely introduction. And um, good morning, family. My name is Du L. And I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And I'm grateful to be talking about fully conceding to my innermost self in step one. Um, I'll start by saying that if you've had an eating history much like my own, uh, where once you start eating, you find you cannot stop. And once you have uh, stopped eating, you find you cannot stay stopped, then welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. Um, I came in into the 12-step program of AA at the end of April 22nd, 2005, and in 16 years, uh, that was 16 years ago, but within four years into the program, I had switched addictions from liquid sugar to solid sugar and crossed into the line uh, of addiction into over compulsive overeating where I gained close to about 300 pounds. 
And at the end of August 2009, I found OA. And um, But what happened is for the next three years, I stay stuck in program, you know, without fully conceiving to my innermost self that I was the true compulsive overeater. You know, and of course, I tried every method. Um, I went to big book studies. I had some of the best sponsors. I went to meetings. Um, I did, you know, I followed the food plan. But for some reason or another, I just could not stay stopped. Um, And I could not figure it out to save my life. (laughs) But what happened is at the end of June uh, 2012, I found um, a God sent sponsor who helped me to take step one in a way where I never took step one before. And it kept me entirely abstinent for the next two years. But before long, I, uh, one day I had a relapse in April 2014. And it was a one day break, but nonetheless, it was break nonetheless, right? And so I thought that. Um, if you, you know, I was taught that if you break your abstinence, then you start all over again and see what you missed. And this is found in Jim's story, right, on page 35 through 37, where he had a break in his, his uh, sobriety, and he had to carefully review what had happened. So that's exactly what I did. I went over it again with my sponsor, and I was entirely abstinent. For the next two years, <laughs> from April uh, 2014 to about November 2016. So I hope you guys are seeing a pattern here, right? So two years in, again, I break my abstinence once again because I rested on my laurels about reading labels and um, took a medication that I had two key food ingredients in uh, that I, I didn't need to take. And this time I was out for a week. So I started all over again. So the funny thing is that the big book tells me on page 30, that this is a progressive illness that over a considerable period, we get worse, never better. And that's exactly what happened to me. Because in November 2016 to January 2017, only like three or four months, I was recovered again, but beginning on January of 2017, I once again rested on my laurels and did not change my food plan to reflect, you know, uh, uh, the inactivity at the time. And I gained over 30 pounds uh, due to excessive eating. Uh, I did not tell my sponsor from February to April. Uh, that I could no longer fit in my clothes. And so when she found out about it, you know, of course, you know what that meant. That meant that I was starting all over again. <laughs> so uh, my my abstinent date now is April 22nd, 2017. So I've been having back-to-back abstinence for four years uh, straight. And so I, I had to go through the steps all over again but this time what happened is my sponsor had to ask me a serious question that really changed the way I thought, you know, about how I was taking these steps. Um, she had asked me, what is it about you that every two years or so you go back into the food? Uh, you know, you're going to have to really pray about this and meditate on this. And um, 
is this the type of recovery that you want? And how free do you want to be? And I had to really think about that, you know, well, you know, because that hit me like a ton of bricks. I had to reflect on my journey into getting recovered. And I knew that what I had, you know, that I had, for better or worse, had had a really good recovery, you know, from, from my past. I mean, compared to my past, this was a gold mine that I had. So what was it in me that I could not fully concede? I mean, and, and that means to admit, to accept, to agree with, even to acknowledge within myself that I am the real compulsive eater and that I needed to be entirely abstinent. So I prayed to my higher power and um, which I choose to call God, right? And, and this was God's answer to me. By asking me these questions, he said, do, do you really believe that you have an illness of the, you know, of the body and the mind, right? Um, you know, and it, it's, it's a one disease, but in twofold in nature. And do you believe that this illness causes you to be abnormal, you know, uh, in, in the body and the mind? And I said, yes, God, I, I truly believe that, right? Um, then it's not enough to think it, for me, what I conclude is not enough to think it right. It has to be that I must believe in it. Right. And that's what the big book says in the doctor's uh, opinion, that if you are the chronic compulsive overeater, you must believe that you are in this class, that you are abnormal body and mind. But did I really believe that enough to absolutely let go of this? Um, so first I had to find out, um, you know, what is the problem, right? Um, was my problem that I couldn't stay abstinent or did I have a real problem, you know, with my thinking? And God led me to page 72 to 73, which I want to read um, from there because that this paragraph really solidified for me what my problem was in actuality um, and why I kept having relapses and why I kept going back into the food without really uh, discovering, you know, what it was that, that was happening to me. Um, so on page 72, it says, we will, we will be more reconciled to discussing ourselves with another person if we see good reasons why we should do so. The best reason first, if we skip this vital step, we may not overcome our drinking. Time after time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts of their lives. Trying to avoid this humbling experience, they have turned to easier methods, which for me was the food. Almost invariably, they got drunk. Haven't persevere with the rest of the program. Here it is. Haven't persevere with the rest of. They wonder why they fell. Well, I did a pretty good program, but I kept falling. We think the reason is that they never completed their house cleaning. They took inventory, all right, but hung on to some of the worst items in stock. They only thought they lost their egoism and fear. They only thought they had humbled themselves, but they had not learned enough humility fearlessness and honesty in the sense that we find it necessary 
until they tell someone their whole story. And I tell you, um, that was, that was deep for me because, um, God kept asking me the questions and, you know, and I had to really see why was it that I was not willing to believe, you know, these things and why I kept having this relapse. So first I had to learn what was the real problem, right? Every time that I had a relapse, it wasn't about the food anymore, right? Um, Because I had stayed abstinent for two years. I mean, you know, every two years I was staying abstinent. I had, you know, one day break, then I had a one week break, then I had three months break. (laughs) So, um, you know, so there was something else going on that had to do with my unchecked ego, And the mental obsession, which according to page 23, is the bigger aspect of my illness, which has to do with the lies, the justifications, the excuses to get back into the food. um, That's what was unchecked, right? And I had to uh, address this through deep and personal step work to clean up the lingering debris of my past. You know, I had done tremendous work to clean up the past, but not in the sense, right, that the first 100 men and women wrote this book, found it necessary. So God also revealed to me that in order to fully concede to my innermost self, I had to know three things. One, what was the problem? Two, what was the solution? And three, how to apply the solution into the problem. So first, if my main problem is my mind that was that was not addressed, you know, and it was my mind that kept me in this insidiousness of the ego uh, that led me back into the food, thinking that I am greater than or less than when and when this happens, God is nowhere to be found. Then when I came to um, my power greater in myself and I looked at it and I said, wow, you know, I'm resting on my laurels. And guess what? If I'm resting on my laurels, I'm like Bill, right? Bill was the, the co-founder and he would always get in trouble when he said this. He was, <laughs> he was, I have arrived, you know, and every time that he said that shortly after he would get drunk. And, and that was true for me in my own story, right? How many times did I say to myself, you know, uh, that look who's sponsoring me. Look how many sponsees I have. Look at how much service I'm doing in a meeting. Look at how great I am. And no real humility to my creator to come into my life and give him the honor and praise and credit he deserves. Instead, I was left with myself. And what page 31 says is that I practice every form of self-deception and experimentation, right, to, to keep my ego uh, inflated. So, you know, everyone else was seeing my size and my, my, my ego the size of Mount, Mount Rushmore, but I'm the last one to know, right? So now that I know the problem that it was my ego, right? So what is the solution? Well, the solution is found on page 25, where it says that God enters into the heart. And one of the things I learned was that the heart is the seed of motivation. It is where your desire drives you to. 
And if I have a desire for recovery, God will propel me towards it, you know, towards that recovery. But if I have a desire towards food or my ego, the disease of compulsive eating will propel me to that, that, that end. And only God can do for me what I can't do for myself. So I needed to continually connect to the source, you know, and, and give up my ego and let God work through me. So what is the application towards the solution? And page 13 to 14, which I'll read to you, which I, I think when we practice this fully to the utmost, these are the promises that we get. It says, my friend promised when these things were done, I would enter into a new relationship. Not that I didn't have a relationship with God, but I would have a new relationship with God, right? And that I and that I would have the elements of way of living, which answer not only my food problems, but my mind problems, all of my problems. Belief in the power of God. Well, that was my problem. I didn't believe in the power of God. I just believed in God, but I didn't believe in the power of God. And that is one of the essentials. And it says, plus, plus, in addition to that belief in the power of God, you have to have willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things. Without those essentials, without practicing this program to the fullest utmost, I was not going to be able to reduce the biggest problem that I had, which was the ego which resided in my mind, which is part of the, the step one, right? Because if you think that this is all about food, then you're going to wonder why you're in program for decades and not get this program, right? Because it's not just about the food. It's about the mind. It's about how we think, how we feel, how we do things, right? And that needs to change. But I can't do it on my own. I need something greater than me to be able to do that for me. So to fully concede to my innermost self was one, acknowledge that I had a problem not only with food, but I had a problem with my mind, right? And my mind, only God can take care of that, right? Like it takes another 11 steps. So how, how many steps does it take to take step one? And people say, well, doctor's opinion, Bill's story, that's step one. And I say, no, it takes 12 steps <laughs> to address step one, right? Because if the, the body, the body's easy, right? You never introduce your key food ingredients into your body. You never break out in the allergy. But the greater aspect is the mind, which takes another 11 steps to address. So that's 12 steps, 12 steps to get step one fully 100%. Um, and that's the whole program. And I, it took me like forever to learn that, right? Like, like to really understand that it's not just about the food. It has to do with my mind and the way I think and the way I let my ego and my instinctual drives go astray. So, you know, I, I'm grateful that God gives me the solution and God's solution for me was to move closer to him practice these principles and I mean do them right like not just think them not just skate by them but really actually do them and so that's what brought me into this recovery now where I don't rest on my laurels and when I start to flounder 
I go back to God and I do a quick review, right? Which I'm going to share with you and I'm going to conclude with this. And the, the, the quick review, how to fully concede is to know the problem, right? As, as God sees it, right? And ask my, myself these questions when, when I am in moving towards disease mode and what am I hiding right from God? Um, you know, and, and the thing is, what would God have me be, right? Like, what am I unwilling to give to God? Why am I unwilling to give it to God? And what would God have me be if I did not have the ego, if I moved closer to him? And the answers came to me, right? It's the answer is that I am a workmanship created in God, right? That would promote me and sustain me if I surrender complete control to my higher power and God would have me be a healthy and fruitful being right in my relationships with him with self and with others and I'm so grateful that God's given me that ability right to recognize that today to know that taking step one takes 12 steps to take it fully and to fully concede to my innermost self is know that I am not greater than I am not less than, I'm somewhere in the middle with God and with others and with myself. And I hope that's been helpful and with that I pass. Thank you, Du, for sharing with us this morning. Now I welcome panelist number two, Christoph L. Hello, thank you very much uh, for your service, moderator, and thank you to the speaker before me for going first. Uh, takes just a little bit of the uh, nervousness off there. Um, yeah, I'm just going to uh, share a little bit how I came to the program and when I came in 2018. That was my first meeting. So I've been in the program for about three years now. I have lost about 100 pounds and uh, kept it off. And uh, that is obviously just the beginning, the, uh, the weight there. So my disease uh, manifested in the use of foods as distraction, as an answer, and as a cure, a cure that obviously did not work for me, for all my feelings, emotions, and problems. I ate by default. Eating was my default mode of operation. If I wasn't eating, I was thinking about eating, I was planning my next meal, in air quotes, or trying to find something to eat. At my worst, towards the end of my eating career, I was miserable. I was lying. I was cheating. I was stealing. I lied to my wife daily about what I had for lunch, even though she could smell it on my breath and taste the grease on my lips. I was habitually cheating on my girlfriends before I was married. I was a shoplifter as a teenager and as an adult, I had an arsenal of stolen tools and materials from my workplaces. I made money selling things I stole at work. I got fired from jobs for stealing. In the last job, I got fired from actually my visa to be in the United States depended on this job and I got fired on that job. So I had to find another job in the United States uh, that would give me a visa to stay here. 
because I'm actually from Germany. And so I had to, I had to really, I had to really, really try and really get another job here that, that would sponsor a visa, which is not an easy thing to do. And <clears throat> excuse me. So when I was in the height of my disease, this is this is some of the accounts that it, that had happened. I I ordered a 16-inch pizza, a chocolate dessert, and a two-liter soda while I was in the car, my five-minute commute from work to my apartment. And this is so I could minimize the time that I had to be at home without eating. So that when I got there, it took them less than 20 minutes to get there when it was only 15 minutes. I knew the name of the delivery driver and I had his personal phone number. I remember the guy vividly. He was also an Uber driver and, and told me he would drive me places for free if I ever needed a ride. So I must have been a very, very good customer and a daily customer, obviously. This was a daily thing at this point. This was not this was not a once a week or twice a week thing for me. That's what I just said. It happened daily, every day after work. Early memories from, from my teens in my hometown in Germany, they revolve around older kids having food that I'd never seen before. And I was too young to have money on me, so I remember bugging them to give me a piece of their food and they would give me a taste and I, I, I came back and I said, can I can I have some more? And they would be annoyed and I would try to beg food off of people as they were eating their food, simply because I didn't have the money on me to buy my own. One of my fondest memories actually from, from my early teens is about the kebab place at my small hometown. They also had pizza and that was the place we had always ordered the pizza. The person knew me by name and they would always greet me by name on the phone, sounding very happy to hear me. And uh, <clears throat> a friend of mine one day was, was getting a kebab at that place. And we went in person and he got a kebab there. And I had to watch him order it and have it made for him, knowing that I didn't have money on me and that I couldn't have one. When she was done with his, the lady asked me what I wanted. And I said I didn't have any money on me. She very quickly made up a serving and gave it for me, gave it to me for free. That was one of the happiest memories from, from my hometown. At the end, I was um, over 300 pounds. I stopped weighing myself, uh, but I must have been 300 or 310 pounds. I had carpal tunnel syndrome. I went to the doctor for that and they said, no, oh, it's, it's the hard work. And, uh, I had bad knees. My knees went bad from over-exercising basketball. Back in the day, I would start playing basketball or I would go to the gym every single day while still eating the same things that I'd eaten before. I had a bad back. My back had been hurting for a long time. I had high blood pressure and I was most likely on the verge of diabetes. I had never... Uh, I had never had that checked, but I would assume that's where I was headed. My relationships with my family was very easy towards the end because I'd moved across the globe and I didn't have to communicate with anyone except for the occasional email or phone call. My relationship with my family before was very distant 
as I had learned later in the program, I never, I never would have described it as distant before, but uh, that's what it turned out to be. I learned a lot of things to be true in program that I didn't think were true before. My interactions with society in general were distorted to say the least. Uh, after buying a pizza at the same place every single day for five weeks and disappearing with it into the back of my windowless white, white van watching videos on my phone, I had uh, been traveling for work for a while and I had a van that I had also converted into a camper so I would go into the store and buy pizza and disappear in the back of my van for an hour or so in the parking lot of the pizza place and then I would leave. Um, so there would be no one in the van, you'd think. I uh, couldn't see anyone in the front seat. So it was a, someone got out of the van, bought the pizza in the place and then got back in the van, but into the back. And so one of the employees of the store behind the counter, they actually had one day they had they had asked me a question. They said, I want to ask you a question. They said, they had someone there that was working there. And those people said they were, they were seriously concerned that they were being surveilled by the federal government because they had every day this van would pull up and they would, they would buy a pizza and a drink and then they would, then they would disappear in the back of the van. And so that was obviously very embarrassing for me and I, I I went to a different store naturally after that because I was too embarrassed to go back there. After three days of going to this other store, uh, the the person behind the counter said, man, you must really like our pizza. And that was good enough to get me to not go there anymore either because I was embarrassed. I went to a different store for lunch and for dinner so that there was no danger of running into the same employee twice the same day. Mind you, I had pizza for lunch and dinner most days. And a lot of candy in between, lots of soda. So I had never held a job for more than nine months. And the nine months was at a temp agency. So that doesn't really count for me towards one job. I either quit after three months or I got fired. And mostly the reason I got fired was I figured out the company, quote unquote. And then I went to the highest ranking officer I could find within the company. And I went to rub it in their face and told them how to fix it. I said, this is, this is why your company isn't going well. And this is how you fix it. And people obviously, you know, they don't, they don't like to hear those kinds of things from, from someone in their twenties and, someone that's been working there for about two months. And if I couldn't get in front of someone and get some FaceTime, I'll just email them, you know, find out the email and just tell them an email. I, I would always find a way to to tell people about it. Alternatively, I would, I would get caught stealing or wasting company time by going out for breakfast while on the clock as a million dollar construction project went down the drain because of my inattentiveness. The employment problem for me works literally as well as a metaphor. I was I was powerless. My life was unmanageable. I I didn't think of it that way at this point before I came to the program. If I would have wasted any thought on these matters while in the food, 
I believe I would have readily admitted the unmanageability, but not the powerlessness. My life was unmanageable without a doubt. Um, I would not, however, stop to exert all the power I had to try and control my eating or my life. I did a poor job of life, of doing life, of running my life. I failed over and over again to get ahead in my finances, control my eating, have sustainable, healthy relationships. I failed at most things that I touched. But I would not quit running the show. Instead of handing over, I ran things deeper and deeper into the ground. I knew I was making things worse, but the only answer I had was more power on my part. And this is true for my jobs and my life. This is what I believe is called the more of the same paradox. I try something to fix something or to get somewhere and it doesn't work. So instead of trying something different, I try the same thing again, but harder and more of it. So if I yell at my cat and it won't listen, I just yell at it louder. I can never get my eating under control, no matter what and how hard I tried, so I tried harder. I could never hold a job for more than a few months, so I got another one, a more challenging one. One day I had an office job that I, uh, I wasn't qualified for, and I, I convinced them to give it to me anyhow. I was sitting in my office, and I wrote myself a motivational pamphlet out of a piece of a filing folder. It said, I don't have to do this. I don't have to live like this. I have a choice. I don't need to eat pizza today. And I put it in my drawer. Only minutes later, a colleague went by my office and asked me if I would join them for lunch at the pizza place. And I automatically spit out a resounding yes. Yes was always the answer if someone asked me. My life was full of absurd things like this at this point. Deep down, I knew I had to do something about this. I had I had felt for years and years that something was wrong with me. My wife had a job on Sundays and I would I would sit in my car in front of the laundromat eating a bunch of candy and, and things I got at the supermarket and I would I would eat it all in the parking lot until I could eat no more and the, the wash was done and I, I had to go back and pick up the wash and go home and I would go to sleep during the rest of the day, get nothing done, procrastinate. I saw a therapist at this point and and shutting out everything else, the only thing I couldn't ignore anymore was the food. So I told her about the food being the only real issue I had, which obviously was a lie. Everything else was pretty good. I said, I just couldn't get the weight under control. My weight was the problem. So you know, she told me about OA and that was on a Monday night. When I went to first, my first meeting, which was the Tuesday following the night I, I had heard about it, I thought I'd taken step one a long time ago. After all, I was significantly overweight, was slowly but surely developing symptoms of depression, and I was really helpless with this problem. The admittance of powerlessness was different for me in a way that I had admitted before. I, before, I had been fighting not only myself, but others about the powerlessness that I had felt. I told my wife about OA in the car the same night I learned about it, and I told her I was going to get help. She was fighting me for it hard. She started telling me about how I only needed to pack lunches, how she's been trying to help me with this problem all along, how if only I wanted it enough, I could do better. 
I was out of the car before it even came to a complete stop when we got to where we were going. The kind of powerlessness she was assigning me was a problem of not enough willpower and wrong morals. It made me feel pathetic and small. The kind of powerlessness I learned about the next night at my first meeting was different from that. The powerlessness there was a logical first step. It was necessary. It was helpful and freeing. It was more than just a group of people confirming what my wife had told me the night before and telling me it's okay. It was fundamentally different. I learned that I was in the clutches of a dangerous illness and that willpower and self-confidence were no defense against it. Listening to these people, hearing their stories, and seeing them living a happy life, healthy life, happy, joyous, and free, opened me to accept the steps that came after step one. It made me teachable and willing to take direction for recovery because I understood that this is something different from what my wife was telling me. This is These people, they had a solution, a solution that I didn't yet know if it worked or not, but I sure knew that what my wife had told me the night before wasn't going to work for me because I had tried for, for a decade. I would, I would try these things over and over again. I got a sponsor at my second meeting and I, I got abstinent. I adopted their food plan and I worked the program to the best of my ability for about a year and a half. I had two sponsors during this time, both relapsed before I could finish step four. And this is working the the program with, with uh, other books other than the big book, also with other literature. My third and current sponsor introduced me to the big book way of working the steps. I got to identify my alcoholic foods, among them sugar. I realized that I'd eaten my alcoholic foods all this time, this year and a half before, and because I was told that if it's not in the first five ingredients, it would be safe for me to consume sugar. I don't believe this is true today. I believe that I have an allergy to sugar and to certain other things. And I believe that if I truly if I eat any sugar or take in any sugar, it will trigger this this allergy. And one account of that is that we had a um, we had a small we had a small bottle of soy sauce in the cabinet, and I would use that just to put on my food to make it taste better. It was a condiment, and I had checked this before for sugar content, and it said there was no sugar in it. So I would. I would safely eat this for a while. However, at some point I would I would start to want more soy sauce. I was starting to obsess about soy sauce and I would pour it on and pour it on and I would commit to my sponsor. I said, I'm only going to put a spoonful on every meal and no more. And one day I would I I would read the ingredients again and I said there is no sugar in this and, and I realized we had bought a refill big refill bottle from a different brand and put it into the smaller bottle, got transferred into the smaller bottle and the big refill brand had sugar in it. So it was only a fraction of a teaspoon that I ate sugar. It was minimal sugar content, but it was a good enough explanation for me why I would start obsessing about the soy sauce and why I would not stop pouring more and more onto my food. So Powerlessness for me today in the program is is very different from what it was before, and I'm very grateful for this powerlessness, and I'm very happy to apply it to my to my life today. It's been a very simple life ever since. 
not easy, but very simple. The clear-cut direction of the big book has given me the freedom not to die a 500-pound compulsive overeater with two amputated legs. I'm living in a healthy body today, and I'm growing along spiritual lines, slowly but surely. The promises from page 83 and 84, a lot of them have come true for me. They say, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. And this is true for me. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. I got to work through my past. I I do not regret it. And I share it freely with all of you and with my family and friends. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. This is true also for me. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. I have even worse things to share than what I shared today, but I would not be afraid to share them with you so that you can see that you're not alone. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And with that, I'm going to pass. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you so much, Christoph, for sharing with all of us this morning. Now I welcome panelist number three, Jen A. Good morning, Leah. Thanks so much. Um, and thanks for the two previous panelists. Wow, what a what a great study this morning. I'm so glad to be a part of it. Um, it's not odd, but it's God that I've been taking um, a couple of sponsees through this step one uh, phase of the program, right? And I'm um, just asking them the questions. So I'm, I'm grateful to be looking at it um, with others today. So my name is Jen A. I am a recovered compulsive overeater by God's grace and mercy today, um, living here in Littleton, Colorado. And, um, you know, my story is, is that I was 220 pounds at my highest weight uh, most of my life that I remember, uh, you know, I just, you know, stopped weighing myself, uh, started wearing my uh, husband's clothing at the time. He was six five <laughs> and 200 pounds, and, and I'm about five seven and a half. And, uh, you know, I just, um, oh, man, wow. Um, when I came into this program, I was not overweight. Um, you know, I say I'm a compulsive overeater, but the disease manifested itself in uh, ways of restricting, of binging and purging, of compulsive exercise. Um, I drank lots of potions and shoved down lots of pills. Um, and I even stuck myself with needles um, at the very, very end. And when I came in here, um, you know, dripping wet, that little that little girl in the room who looks like she's recovered. Just remember, the skinniest girl in the room is not recovered, and she's not the healthiest. <laughs> that was me. Um, I came in here because um, I had tried just about everything, um, and you know, that's what this powerlessness showed me. Um, there wasn't any um, amount of information or data that I could collect that showed me my powerlessness. My powerlessness and my unmanageability are two things that I have to experience. This is a, an experiential step for me. 
um, you know, the powerlessness was the driving force. And it did get me to a place of desperation. And I came to OA because I just knew that I never wanted to be that 220-pound girl anymore. I knew that I had dieted my way down to what I thought was somewhat of an okay weight. I thought I could still be skinnier, more heroin thin. Um, but the reality was, as I came here, um, like people say, for the vanity. <laughs> and um, I'm glad that they say that I stuck around for the sanity because this, this program doesn't promise me um, a thin body. There's nothing about that in the promises. It doesn't promise me that I'm, you know, going to be the perfect size. That's not in the promises either. It promises me that I will be sane, useful, loving, tolerant, patient, kind. I mean, just the things that it says, I'm just, I'm blown away by that. Um, and in uh, the AA 12 and 12 on step one, um, I love how it talks about who cares to admit complete defeat. I didn't want to, right? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It's truly awful to admit that, you know, a Sunday hot fudge chocolate sundae in my hand, right, that I've warped my mind into such a obsession for destructive eating that only an act of providence can remove it from me. But as soon as I entered um, OA, I took another view um, of the absolute humiliation. And so this is where I say thank you to every single person that sat in the rooms with me that first year of Overeaters Anonymous when I came in in 2016. Um, you people told your stories. Um, you ate like me. You thought like me. You lived your life like I did. And if it wasn't for you, I don't know that I could see that in myself and see that I was powerless. But, it, you know, it wasn't just walking in the door that I saw I was powerless. I sat in those rooms for 11 months, and I, I did what you people call dieting with group support. You know, I, I ate, you know, my calories. I logged it into this computer called my fitness pal. Um, and, and, you know, I was compliant. I showed up at the meetings. I chanted your slogans. Um, and, and, I, and I did the things that you told me to do imperfectly. I even got a sponsor, um, and I love her imperfectly as she was. She did the best to guide me. You know, I was going to two programs. I had one foot in the canoe of OA, one foot in the canoe of Al-Anon, and I'm trying to get to the shore of freedom. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you it doesn't work. But when the noose got tight enough around my neck, around the eating and the exercise and the throwing up, you know, and the consistent exercise, that's what beat me into a state of unreasonableness. It's the powerlessness, right? I had to admit that I was truly a compulsive overeater, that all this dieting exercise and the things that I was trying was not working. See, I was in denial until I came into the rooms, but you all helped me see that denial. It was the people in this room that showed me that I was powerless. It was the experience and the experiential things that I did with the food and with the other things that showed me that, guess what? Yeah, I had a problem. And I love how it was talked about today, you know, like food, exercise, those things were never the problem. That was my solution to my problem. I didn't even know that I had a problem. But you guys showed me that I did. Um, and, and, you know, this battle with the food and the exercise and everything um, was the way in which I could control. I was doing it. I had the power. That's not powerlessness. That's me doing the things I needed to do. 
and then, um, you know, I, I will have to say this was quite an organic process for me. Like I said, I, I just want you guys to know I met with my sponsor one day a week. I went to one meeting a week. Um, I um, didn't pick up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous until I finally hit what people call maybe a bottom. But I never heard a podcast. I never was on a meeting like this. Um, you know, it was, like I said, experiential. I just kept going back out and doing the things I needed to do. I kept eating small, minute amounts of ingredients that were fueling this phenomenon of craving that I later learned about. You know, I came into Overeaters Anonymous people not eating flour and not eating sugar. So your flour and sugar club for me, why wasn't it working those first 11 months? You know, why didn't I get this freedom from the obsession in my mind? Why didn't I get, um, you know, I, I, I could start eating gluten-free items and, and coating them with maple syrup, right? That was, I was feeding the allergy, and then I couldn't stop. The twist of the mind told me, oh, just one more bite. Oh, it's okay to have this. Oh, it's okay to have that. And that's what I kept doing. That was the experiential data that I needed to finally come to a place of powerlessness. So after 11 months and two weeks, I always joke because I put the two weeks in there so you can hear it, um, you know, I, I, became, um, I became complacent. And I was ready to pick up the shiny gold coin on the one year and say that I had done it. I had sat in your rooms with you people. I had listened to the stuff that you told me. And I was, I was good and I was golden. No, Jen, you weren't. And, you know, it was a lot of things that built up into, up to that point. I was feeding the allergy. The twist of the mind was hot and heavy for me. I had no power greater than myself that everyone talked about in that step two, even though I had gone to step two and taken step three, though I couldn't remember what step three said and I didn't know what that third step prayer prayed. Like, I was just giving it lip service and going through the motions in Overeaters Anonymous. But eventually, you know, the boyfriend breaks up with you. The job's not going so well. The ex-husband's driving you crazy. I'm a single mom of two kids. I'm just, you know, like five year, four or five years into a brand new job. I had worked for myself. I mean, this is where it, it was crazy. I mean, you look at unmanageability, it's on page 52. There's nine statements that my sponsor turned into questions. And he said, what's the unmanageability in your life, Jennifer? Ask yourself these questions in this inventory. I was having trouble with personal relationships. I couldn't control my emotional natures. I was yelling at my colleagues, right? I was prey to misery. I'd come home and I was so depressed when my kids were gone from me. I was depressed. I couldn't make a living. Every dollar I made went out the bank account. I was unhappy. I was uselessness. I was full of fear. Fear riddled me inside and out. That's the unmanageability pace a piece on page 52. And could I be of real help to other people? No. I used people. I was a user. I lied. I cheat. I stole. I manipulated and I negotiated to get whatever I want. I was a raging lunatic. I was crazy. I didn't, but I couldn't see it, right? Thank you, God, that this program helped me see it. And um, after all those things, you know, all that experimentation, I call it, happened in my life. I don't know, I know it today, it's called the mental blank spot, right? It's the I can't stop at starting part. It's the twist of the mind. It's pages 23 to 43, which is I know today the biggest portion of step one. It starts in the doctor's opinion, but it doesn't end until page 43. That's, that's the whole step, step one is in there. 
page after page, you know, um, example after example, the milk and the whiskey, the guy who runs out and steps out in front of a trolley car, even though he knows it's not good for him. I remember hearing that story for the first time. And I'm like, who the heck does that crap? Not me. Oh, yeah, Jen, you're doing it. Um, and one day, you know, I went out and I was going for a haircut and I was just like, yep. And I pulled into a convenience store and I walked in and I bought white flour, white sugar. I bought salt. I bought fat. I bought all the things that I didn't even know I was allergic to at the time. But I knew they weren't good for me. And I knew that people refrained from them in Overeaters Anonymous. And I loaded up the front seat of my car and the passenger seat. And I started shoveling that stuff in as fast as I could. You know, that's, that's the place it takes me back to. I need that sense of ease and comfort from that first bite. But the bite that I see other people taking with impunity, I take it like I don't even know I'm doing it. And I ate and I ate in the next convenience store and the next convenience store. And then I sat in that chair and I got my hair done. And my best friend, Anna, 40-some years recovered in AA, put a big book in my lap. She didn't know I was relapsing. She's an alcoholic. And we were just talking about, you know, program, because that's all it was for me at the time was a program. And I sat there and I just was glossed over. I was like high on the food, just looking at those words. And when I left that store, I couldn't even tell her what I had done or where I was at. And I went back to the next convenience store and the next convenience store. And by the third time, I'm sitting in a back alleyway. It's dark, right? I'm, I've, I've loaded up at Trader Joe's. I'm looking at, I, I went to the back alley. Why? Because that's a safe place for me. Nobody's going to see me. I can hide. And I went there and I took, and you guys called it like um, bakery bags and boxes. <laughs> they were all sitting in that seat next to me. My toothbrush was in my hand, my front seat and my front door was open and I was puking my brains out thinking, if I get it all out, I can go back to Overhears Anonymous, still accept that coin. And I don't have to admit that I've been defeated by this disease. I can say, I've done it. No, I hadn't done it. But that's what it means to concede to my innermost self. In my most desperate case, Bill calls it on, in the 12 on 12, he calls it the last gasper. That was my last gasp, my last binge in that back alley when I pray today that it was the last one. You know, I'm, I'm a drowning person out there in that back alleyway. It was dark. I was crying. That big, big windshield, that light shone down through the windshield. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I cried the desperate prayer. And I prayed that every desperate person cries it in this program because that was a turning point for me. I said, help me, God. And I picked up the phone, even after I ate, and I called this man, this man who sat in those face-to-face meetings, who had read the ninth that promises, who when he talked, he was like, it was like water was running down an oil can. He was so serene, so peaceful. And his life was manageable today for the most part. And he said he lived life on life's terms. And I called him and I said, I've just done it. I've eaten, I've thrown up. He goes, great, get to a meeting tomorrow. I said, will you sponsor me? He said, yes. You know, five years ago, that was five years ago. And I said to him, um, four, four years ago, uh, I just got four years of sobriety in OA. And I said to him, you know, I said, Mike, why was it so easy to sponsor me? And he said, because when you came in, you were out of ideas, you were done. You had admitted that you were powerless and that your life was unmanageable and you saw it. 
You experienced it for yourself. No information in the big book, no podcast, no nothing, because I didn't have it. I did the experimental thing, and I lived it. He couldn't convince me. It doesn't say I was convinced to my innermost self. No, it says I'm conceding to my innermost self. I gave in. I quit fighting. I submitted and I surrendered in that back alleyway. I took steps one, and then I said, help me, God. I took step two. I admitted that there was nothing that I was going to do that was going to restore me to a sane body weight, a sane way of thinking, except for something bigger than me. And you guys later taught me in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and my sponsor showed me that I'm powerlessness. I'm power. The lack of power is my dilemma. I am powerless. You know, the manifestation of this disease, I told you how it, it, it happened to me. And I didn't keep standing in front of a trolley gar- car. That's not how it progressed for a girl like me. But I was taking laxatives. I kept going back to the gym. I had broken out in hemorrhoids. Like, and I'm at the gym doing squats and lunges and on the treadmill and the stair mill when I had 10 hemorrhoids. I'm not kidding you guys. It was painfully miserable, but I kept working out in that gym. And it wasn't until two days later that I went to the emergency room and they removed them, painfully removed them. And guess what? I went back out and exercised again a few months later. And I got those same hemorrhoids by taking those laxatives and shitting my brains out. Excuse my French. But I want to tell you how this disease manifested for me. That's how it manifested in a way that was just insane. That's the insanity. Doing something over and over again, thinking I'm going to get results. How about the year that I walked into the clinic and I said, I'll eat 500 calories a day. Give me the needles. I'm, des- I'm, I'm, I'm like scared to death of needles, but I was injecting myself in my stomach with pregnant women's urine month after month after month. And then I would gain 40 to 50 pounds back and I'd go to a different clinic where they wouldn't know me, put on the dark sunglasses, pay the money, and then start sticking myself again. Not one time, not two times, but four times within two years. Trying the same things over and over again, Jen. That's how the progression of this disease manifested in my life. And then guess what? It it, it really took a toll on my health. The exercise, I had to have three discs removed from my neck in this program. I put in new porcelain discs. That was the health that I experienced in this program. My relationships were failing with my family. I couldn't even have a relationship with a significant other, you know. Um, My finances were a hot mess. My parents were having to help me out left and right. Um, You know, those countless vain attempts. And I love how it talks about that in the doctor's opinion. Um, I'd I'd be crazy not to go back and say on page number XXB at the bottom, it says, I personally know scores of cases, the doctor said, who were of the type, Sorry, my alarm went off. Who were of the type who, um, uh, whom other methods had failed me completely? You know, I got 65 written right here in my big book, and every time I sponsor somebody or listen to a story, I hear the methods that failed me completely. Nothing else worked. It didn't work for me. And sitting in that alleyway, I saw that I was powerlessness, and I needed to find strength and hope. You know, when I finally admit and I accept and I acknowledge that's the that's defeat is what bill calls in the 12 by 12 the personal powerlessness once i start i can't stop that's the allergy and i can't stop from starting that's the twist of the mind and he says that i am bankrupt what does it mean to be bankrupt that i'm ruined that it's utter failure and that i am lacking something 
And I had God, I'm going to tell you, I served in women's ministry. I ran programs. I was holier than thou, people, but I was lacking the power. I didn't have a relationship with God. What I had was I used God. I made God my bitch. And I outlined everything that I wanted God to do. And today I don't do that. You know, God showed me that, you know, this liberation and strength, people, that's the promise. I can be set free. I'm unchained. It talks about in step three, you know, that in step three it tells us, you know, we're admitting this. I'm powerless. And I need something bigger than myself. So I allow God to come in and do what I can't do for myself. And he's the one that unchains me from the food. I, didn't, I did the work. I took the action in this program. But this was an inside job. And God's still doing the inside job. And the strength, I don't resist God. Some days I do. But for the most part, you know, he gives me this power. My own actual experience with the food, the exercise, the bulimia, the restriction, the weight loss, the aid of the pills and the potion, this brought me to the deep realization that my own personal power could not relieve me. And, another, and human aid couldn't help me either. And so the progression, I know three things. It's permanent. I always have this disease. You know, it's progressive. It gets worse over time. I saw that happen in my life. I saw it in that, in that, that food log that I wrote. You know, the drunks write a drunk log, I write a food log. What it was like, then what happened, and today this is what it's like now. A lifetime of experience developed over a period of time in that progressiveness. And, you know, I knew it was fatal. I'm going to tell you guys, two years before I came to this program, my best friend, 5'9", 86 pounds, dripping wet, I attended her funeral. She was found dead on her floor. Her heart stopped beating. And the bags of vomit were ziplocked in Ziploc baggies all around her. That could have been me. And that still wasn't enough. See, I can't be convinced. I have to concede to my innermost self. That's what we're talking about today. And I wish, you know, I wish that I could go back and and look at it any differently. But on page 41, it says, you know, as soon as I regained my ability to think, I, I I read this later, you know, I went carefully over, he says, that evening in Washington. I go carefully over that night in the alleyway. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatsoever against the first drink, the first bite that I took at that convenience store. That's the mental blank spot. That time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I knew I'd be going to get more HCG. I knew I'd be be back to the gym, but I wasn't thinking about it as I was, you know, just pounding that stuff down and eating it. I had commenced to eat as carelessly as though, you know, those those Kit Kat bars and the popcorn and whatever it was, you know, was just like, it was, it was nothing. I now remembered what my OA friends had told me, how they prophesied that if I had an over, a compulsive over me eating or alcoholic mind, the time and place would come that I would eat again. They had said that I thought I did raise defense. It would one day give way before some trivial reason for having it drink or eating. It did happen that night for me in that in that back alleyway and at six convenience stores. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help me in those strange mental blank spots. I know I needed to have a power greater than myself that was going to restore me to sanity. And so for me, steps one and two became a reality. And I went to that AA meeting the next morning. And that's where I said, I am, I'm an addict. And they accepted me. They thought I was on meth or something probably, right? <laughs> and I learned um, what that big book had to say. And I read it day by day and the 12 by 12 night by night. 
And I began to sink in this information, and I did the steps 1 through 12. And I continue to live in steps um, 1 through 12. And 10, 11, and 12, we say, are the maintenance steps. You know, every day I have to wake up in 1 through 12, but I also know that I have a job. That step 10 tells me I need to continue to take personal inventory. And when I'm wrong, I have to promptly admit it. I have to persevere in this program. I have to keep doing it. I don't ever get to stop doing the, the inventory 1 through 7 you know, eight and nine if I've harmed anybody. And then I'm going to seek my higher power out through prayer and meditation and improve my conscious contact with God as I understand him, praying only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. What does that mean? I got one prayer today, people. It doesn't say prayers. It says prayer. Thy will not mine be done. That's what I've learned in the program that now I'm choosing to call this life, right, this lifestyle, one through 12. And I carry that all out. I'm spiritually aware. I have knowledge of God. And I, I use God every single day to bring me and right-size me and remind me that I am powerlessness, my life is unmanageable, and that I need him. And then I keep surrendering myself over to him. Thy will not mine be done. And then having had an, a spiritual awakening, and today I'm spiritually awakened to the, you know, the, the point of consciousness that I'm capable of being. And I keep being awakened more and more every year as a result of doing these steps. And I'm carrying this message to other compulsive overeaters, being of service where I need to be. And I'm practicing these principles in all my affairs. What are the principles? You know, people, the principles are the steps. I can look at all the words that are attached, honesty, courage, faith, willingness, love, justice, but the principles are the steps. Am I waking up every morning admitting that I'm powerless, that my life is unmanageable, conceding that there's something bigger than me? and making a decision to turn my day, my will, my life, and everything over to God, to my higher power, that's what I'm doing. You know, I can be a CIP in this program. That's what it means, CIP, 10, 11, and 12. Continue, improve, and practice. Or I can be RIP, and that's dead, resting in peace. I can be dying in this disease, dying without a power greater than myself. I'm so grateful, um, you know, just for the program that has shown me how to live life today. You know, I'm living life on life's terms. I'm able to deal with the things that come up. Um, I'm able to help guide and direct others imperfectly. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeking God more and more every single day with all my heart, all my soul, and all my might. And it's so great because as soon as I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm shackled again and I'm chained up, I just know that promise, and that's the liberation and strength that it promises me, you know, in, in the 12 and 12. But I have to, I have to admit complete defeat. And I learned, um, you know, that with this desperation that we've been talking about today, when I am desperate enough in any situation, because the food isn't calling to me anymore, right? It's everything else that I'm dealing with. It's all the other ways in life that I'm powerless today. I'm not... You know, God's removed from me. He's taken away the need to eat, to exercise, to stick myself with pins and potion, or potions and pills and needles and blah, whatever it is. I don't even think about that stuff anymore. I don't stand in the mirror and poke and prod myself. You know, I'm in acceptance that I'm an imperfect child of God and I'm doing it imperfectly day by day. Um, and, and, I didn't, and I didn't want to admit defeat. I didn't want to admit that I was powerless. But today it's a joy and a privilege to admit defeat because then when I do, something bigger than myself can come in. And with that, I pass.
Oh, thank you, Jen, so much. Thank you to our three panelists for your rich and profound shares this morning on step one, powerlessness and unmanageability. Very touching. Thank you. Share ID for today's presentation, 17,329. That's 17329. Contact information for our panelists will be given at the conclusion of the recording, so stay tuned for that. We'll use our remainder uh, remaining time here for a few questions. If you have a question, questions only for the panelists, press star 1 to unmute. And I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. We'll take about five. Hello, my Abby name is S. Kathy S. Melissa Abby S. C. Melissa C. Abby S. Abby S. Any other questions? Star one to unmute. Wendy B. Wendy B. All right, let's get started with Kathy S. Kathy S. Star one to unmute. Abby, Abby S. Gotcha. Okay, let's go, Abby. Thank you so much. Abby S., go ahead with your question. Star one to unmute, Abby. Hi, this is Abby. Sorry about that. Can I be heard? Yes, please go ahead with your question. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much for the three panelists. My question is for Jen A, and I'm just wondering um, if you exercise at all today. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks so much for the question. Yeah, that, that's a good question, right? Uh, I do exercise today. Um, I exercise, uh, you know, obviously, we have a food plan. Um, I have an exercise plan, you know, and I know that there's only so much I can do. And if I do so much, I know that my nutritionist has indicated that my food plan then needs to expand and I need to eat more food because calories in, uh, calories out equals calories in. Um, and that's discussed with my sponsor, right? I have the committee of three, me, God, and my sponsor. And I go back to my sponsor and I say, hey, you know, um, I, I'd like to start exercising again. For me, I, I didn't exercise for months and months and months. Like I told you, I had a disc removed, three discs removed on my neck. I was on a car accident. Like God kept me off the Stairmaster and out of the gym for quite a while. And um, when I was ready to go back, I sat down with my sponsor and I said, this is what I'd like to do. Great. And you're going to get someone to guide you just like I did a nutritionist. And someone told me what I was going to do and how much I could do. And um, I laugh today because I can go days and days without exercising. Um, I don't even, you know, I, I go to move my body um, and to keep healthy and to stay fit. And I enjoy the outdoors. I live in Colorado. It's beautiful here. So um, that was just my experience uh, after, you know, I'd given it up for a long time. Um, and I will just say when I sponsor women, I ask them, you know, if it's a manifestation of their disease, if they would be willing 
just like with the food. Are you willing to put it down for 30, 60, 90 days? Um, I think it's really important that we be free of that obsession while we're doing it. Um, so I hope that helps. Thank you, Abby S., for the question. Next up, Melissa C. Hey, good morning. It's Melissa C., Recovered in New York. And um, thanks, Leah, for your service. And thanks to all the panelists. It was really excellent, excellent special edition. Um, so my question is also for Jen. Um, my curiosity is piqued about Mike, your sponsor, and that um, I want to know the qualities, you know, what made him someone that you could call in that moment, um, knowing that he would be there to help you? And how was he sponsoring you throughout this time? Um, and did you continue to use him as your sponsor? Thanks. Hey, Melissa, say the last part of your question, because I was unmuting and it, this guy was talking in my ear. <laughs> yes. Was he your sponsor throughout? Was he consistent? Yes. Okay, good. Great. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, Mike was, uh, my sponsor was the first guy that, um, when I walked into my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting looking for a sponsor, because they went through this, um, they went through this workshop book in OA, it was um, conference approved material, and they said, you need a sponsor, and I asked anybody in the meeting could sponsor me, and they said, no, you need to go to a bigger meeting, so I did. Um, You know, he read those nine-step promises, and to me, like I told you, you know, it was like, the oil, the oil can, if you've ever seen one, like water just runs down it, right? The oil. And that's how he was. And I saw that in him. And as I sat in those meetings and he had read those nine step promises the first time. And I was like, Oh, there's promises. Like who doesn't go to a, who doesn't go to a um, Weight Watchers without a promise of this or that? Who doesn't go to a gym and get a trainer if they can't promise them they're going to, you know, get fit. Um, I heard the promises just like that in him. And I was like, Oh, I want that. And um, I will just say that, you know, I just kept going back to those meetings and I just kept hearing him and he shared with just, just serenity and peace. And, and there was just something about him and I wanted what he had. And so, you know, he sponsored me. I, I was sponsored a lot different. Like I said, I didn't have all the beautiful tools that, um, you know, this OA meeting, A Vision for You, um, gives us to help with our sponsees. Um, but I just met with him week by week. Um, face to face, we went through the big book and, um, you know, I just, I worked the steps with them. And, and I think the inventory process for me with him was, and the guidance was, I spent four years with him as my sponsor. Um, and, you know, recently I just went to do this, the steps again with a different sponsor and program, which I think is an awesome experience. He said, go do it. Go have a new experience with someone else. And a woman took me through the steps, which was different this time. Um, and I was able to things were able uh, to come up for me that wouldn't before. And I don't know if it was because of a male sponsor or not, but um, you know, I, I did that. And again, I'm still in touch with Mike and I still meet with Mike. And now that um, I've, I've, I've uh, gone through the 12 steps again, I, I meet with my sponsor again. Um, but he's just, it, it was, it was what I saw in him on a week to week basis. That's why I think it's so important. Like people say, do you have a home meeting? Like, on Zoom right now, I go to two meetings, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. They're on opposite coasts. They're not even here in Colorado. And I see and I show up in those meetings because I think it's really important. It's like, well, I can't just show up once in a while and people go, oh, I want what you – people have to see that. And we have to share on the lines. I'll be really honest about this. We have to share on the lines and in those meetings 
what is really going on in our lives? How are we really getting through life? It's really great to tell, you know, all the good stuff, but sometimes we have to share our current um, trials and what we're going through and how God is using us as recovered fellows, how, you know, we're walking the walk and, and is that matching with our talk? So, yeah, thanks, Melissa, for the question. Thank you, Melissa. Wendy B., your turn. Yeah, hi, this is Wendy B., recovered in Arizona. And um, my question, too, is for Jen. And I heard you say, you know, I can't be convinced I need to concede. And um, so I looked up concede in the Big Book Dictionary, and it says to... um, to show often against one's will that we agree with something. And that speaks to me so much about our resistance and our need to come to the end of our self-will and surrender. And I was just wondering if you um, could speak to that a little bit more. Thank you for the question. Yeah, you know, that came to me. I don't know where, it's obviously a God thing today because I wasn't (laughs) I wasn't thinking convinced. I know what conceit is, right? And convinced means like I have, I mean, the food convinced me, right? Um, the the things that I was doing with my body, that experimental stuff, that that's the stuff that convinced me. I couldn't be convinced by a person. I couldn't be convinced by somebody just reading me text or things like that. That's not what convinced me. I think that's what I was trying to say. And um, I hope that's what came across. But, you know, they say in this program, uh, self-knowledge. We can have all the knowledge in the world. We can know the big book inside and out. And, and I've sponsored those people. It's really hard because, like, you know everything. The thing was I knew nothing. All I did was experiment with food and exercise and drugs. And what happened was eventually it beat me up, right? It beat me up to the point where I was willing to say, I give up. I I'm, I'm not going to argue with whatever or whomever is going to take me through this work. I'm not going to fight. I have lost. And, and that's what happened to me in that back alleyway. I lost. I lost the, I lost the, the desire to even want to go and do it again. Like I'm sitting there in that back alleyway, and I'm like, I've done HCG four times in two years. I've been to the gym. You know, I've tried to compete in bikini competitions. I get down to 5% body weight, and then I gain back 20 pounds in a week later. I'm like, I've tried it all. I've been to the fat, the fat sucking place where they put this thing on your fat, and they're, and they're, they're telling you you're going to lose 20% of your fat if they can freeze it off for you. You know, I've been to, the, I've been to counseling. That's how I got to OA as I was going to counseling and this lady was trying to give me the tools and she said, just eat one little square of chocolate every night. Oh my God, a square of chocolate. I go back to the refrigerator. Like the hinges were worn off on my refrigerator for sure. So it's all the experimentation. I cannot be convinced by somebody else or something. Now I can, I can hear the stories of the people that are in the room and their stories, that's what helped for me in OA until I, got to, until I got to the program of Overeaters Anonymous and sat in the rooms and really kept coming back to the meetings, and I never left. I just kept going to the meetings. I heard through other people, and their stories convinced me of one thing. That's the one convincing. They convinced me that, yes, I was one of them too. I ate like they ate. I thought like they thought, Right. I did the things that they did with food. Prior to Overeaters Anonymous, I had never heard of that before. 
I knew of AA, but I'd never heard of OA. So I personally could not be convinced. Like you couldn't tell me that I had to have this thing and that I needed to put the food down. But when I was ready, when I was ready to hear that, and we opened up the doctor's opinion, and I read three times in there that I had to put the food down or it wasn't going to work, I, I could be convinced at that time because the food I'm putting the food down and I'm going to embark on this journey and it's giving me the precise instructions and it tells me that it doesn't tell an alcoholic in there well just put down the whiskey but you can still drink the wine right so I had to look at all those things that's where I love this program and I love um, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is because it tells me precisely what to do and how to do it and it's just suggesting I don't have to but if I want what my sponsor has sitting across from me, I'm going to do what he did. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Wendy B., for the question. We have time for perhaps two more questions. Star one. Barbara E. Barbara E. Hiya P. Hiya P. Is that correct? Yes, you got it. Excellent. Thank you. Barbara, go ahead with your question. Well, first of all, I want to thank all three of the panelists. All three of you were authentic and so sincere. So I can address this to any one of you. Um, I was a, always going uh, taking the geographical cure. When a diet didn't work, when, some, when something failed me, it was never my fault. It was the diet. Now, I heard from all of you that you kept coming back, even though you'd slipped, fallen, whatever you want to call it. What gave you the tenacity not to take a, a, your, the geographical cure to get on your motorcycle like Bill and whiz off into the country? So anyone can answer that for me. And again, I thank you all. Thanks, Barbara, for the question. Do or Christoph, perhaps, want to respond to Barbara's question? I can answer that question. Please um, do. Thank you. Thank you for the question. It's um, it's got to be a two-part answer. When I was not in the program, or before I was working the program, I did indeed. Um, indulge in the geographical cure. I I left things behind a lot, and like I said, I'm originally from from Germany, and I came to the states um, whilst being fully in my disease, and it actually it got a lot worse after I came here. Um, so when it comes to today, or as I'm in the program, this is actually one of the harder things for me to do. And so I, I appreciate the question, how do you find the tonacity to not, not indulge in that, in that cure? And like I said before, I had a bunch of cures that never worked. One of the more difficult things, like I said, but it's, it's the, the desperation that I came in with and working these steps and using all the tools to remind me of what it was like. I know driving by a pizza place today or thinking about moving somewhere far away or just running away from my problems. 
the difference between before program and today for me is that I have through working these steps, I have the reminders. I have, I can work with sponsees and they tell me about their struggles and I remember my struggles through that. So it's really, for me, it's the, the desperation and the horror, the horrors of eating, of running away from things that keep me from doing it. And it's more of a, it's more of a, I better, I better do this, right? I better work the steps. I better do not run away type situation for me. So I hope that makes any sense. Thank you. Thanks, Barbara E., for your question. Haya P., your question, please. Star one to unmute Haya. Oh, I apologize for that. I thought I was unmuted. This is Haya P. in Colorado, compulsive overeater. Um, Jen, you said TIP at the end of your talk. Can you just repeat what that stands for? I loved it, but I can't remember what it stood for exactly. Hello, Haya. Yes, I can tell you what that means. I heard it on a vision for you. This guy used to share from his hot tub, and he said, I'm a CIP. Um, that's where I picked it up from. And C uh, stands for continue. It's part of step 10, right? I continue to take personal inventory. The I stands for improve. I'm improving my conscious contact with God. And the P stands for practicing these principles in all my affairs. So I'm a CIP in the program of Overeaters Anonymous. Hope that helps. Thank you, Chaya, for your question. And I believe, was it Deanna P. had a question as well? Am I right about that? Deanna B. Deanna B., do you have a question? All right, perhaps not. Well, thank you to those. May I be heard? Yes. Is this Deanna P? Oh. Uh, Deanna P is in Paul. Okay. Go ahead. Get it in there quick. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, this is for any of the panelists. Um, you know, when we come into program, we're, we discover that we're powerless over food, but I'm just wondering, like, in your, in your day-to-day life, um, other areas of your life that you realize and you have to – concede to your innermost self that you're powerless over. Thank you. Good morning. I'll take that one. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, um, I I love that question because, yes, you know, that's what we were talking about earlier, that Do star one to unmute. We lost you there. Did you hear anything that I said? <laughs> Go ahead and start again. Okay. No, I was saying that's a very good question. Um, you know, because what 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 we think of, you know, the disease is twofold in nature, right? Body and mind. And so when it comes to the body, of course, you know, anytime that I ingest certain 
uh, key food ingredients into my body, it causes an allergy and I break out in it and then I can't stop. But it can be addressed by practicing entire abstinence. But what about other areas in my life? You know, do I have the unmanageability? Of course, you know, like it talks about the mind, right? The mind uh, <laughs> is a battlefield each and every day. And that's why it takes another 11 steps to address that mind, right? Um, you know, and I see the powerlessness, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, my unmanageability, when it comes to family, when it comes to jobs, when it comes to my emotional nature, when it comes to my character defects, when it comes to, I mean, the list goes on and on. And um, how can I take step one, right? Because, you know, as I mentioned before, step one to me is not just doctor's opinion, Bill's story, and just addressing the food, and then it ends there. Step one takes 12 steps, you know, to really take thoroughly step one. And every day I have to look at, you know, what, what is it that, you know, is killing me? What is it that is driving me back to those thought processes of taking the food? And, um, and I love what, you know, the big book says that, you know, it's going through that process and Jen put it so beautifully, um, especially for the beginners, you know, um, that, you know, you have to go through this process. And once you recover, you can't rest on your laurels. You just got to keep practicing it. And I, I love that, that CIP continue, improve and practice. And that's what I do every day, right? Like to address the things that, that are, um, killing me because as soon as I rest on my laurels, soon as I do that, as soon as I leave God out, as soon as I don't practice this, as soon as I don't do the things that I used to do, I go back. And it's been my experience that it's not a if when you go back to the food, it's a when if you don't continue to do this. So, um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I appreciate that, you know, like, just continue, 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 practice, improve your relationship with God, and you should be okay. And with that, I pass. And that's a great note to close on. Thank you to those who posed questions this morning. Of course, thank you to our three panelists, Du L, Christoph L, and Jen A. Thank you for giving so much of yourselves this morning and sharing your step one experience. Very rich and profound. Thank you. Today's share ID is 17,329. That's 17329. We're going to close now from page 164. Of course, you know it's from a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. <laughs>